8. Matthew chapter 8. While you're turning there, let me mention that we do anticipate partaking in the Lord's table this evening. So that is something that you can even be preparing your heart about this afternoon. And our congregational singing, our time in the scripture as well, will help us to prepare to participate in that uh, with grateful hearts and devoted hearts and to truly give thanks for the broken body and shed blood of our Savior. So that will be in tonight's service. Last week, if you were with us in our series uh, in this book, we turned to this eighth chapter for the first time. And we noted then that chapters 8 and 9 form a two-chapter section, and we attempted to overview that entire uh, section. And if you're with us for that overview, I do trust that you would be able to fairly quickly recall that one of the primary features of the two chapters is ten sample miracles of Jesus. And we're referring to them as samples because, of course, the Lord... Uh, did many more than these 10 miracles. We're also referring to them as samples because they're clearly chosen with a particular purpose in mind. There's a, there's a purposeful role in this book. There are multiple indications throughout the book that Matthew wrote with a Jewish audience primarily in mind. And one of the clear objectives that he had uh, was to present Jesus Uh, First of all, as king of the Jews, and then ultimately, by extension, the king of the kingdom of heaven and king of kings and lord of lords. But chapters 1 through 4 present him as having all the credentials of the messianic king. From the very first verse of uh, the whole book, he is presented as a Hebrew son of Abraham. And he is presented as a royal son of King David. The genealogy is then given to support that. He's presented as being born of a virgin. And then all of the geography even of his birth and his childhood in chapter 2 is all in keeping with Old Testament prophecy concerning the Messiah. On into chapter 3 and 4, there's the prophesied forerunner named John the Baptist. And then... There's the impeccable character Jesus displayed in the presence of face-to-face combat with the devil. All of this is presenting him as the king with all the credentials. And then when it comes to his public ministry, we saw last time at the end of chapter 4, Matthew says that you could summarize his public ministry in two categories. The first one was his teaching and preaching ministry. And the second was his doing miracles. And after Matthew again says you can kind of just divide it out in those two, we then go from chapter 4 into chapters 5, 6, and 7, and here's a sample of his preaching. Because 5, 6, and 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. And after his preaching, here's a sample of his preaching, now in chapters 8 and 9, We have a record of of these sample miracles, 10 sample miracles. And all of that helps us know that Matthew isn't just kind of jotting down uh, rambling memories that he had of Jesus. And I'm not even saying that that would be wrong. 
But what we're just trying to emphasize is there's a purposeful design and there's a structure that is very apparent. And just to tie the the last section with this new section, I want you to look back at the end of chapter 7 and just see again the response to that, that preaching and teaching ministry. Look at verse 28. It came to pass when Jesus had ended these things. So when he finished his sermon, Sermon on the Mount, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. I'm just pausing there to say that teaching with authority is something you would expect from a who? From a king who Matthew has presented Jesus to be. And with the people expressing, again, um, astonishment at, at his authority, now Matthew moves into, as we've noted, 10 sample miracles. But those miracles are also demonstrating his authority over multiple realms. He has authority, for instance, and perhaps you group these. We tried to go back and group the 10 into several categories. Jesus has authority over physical illnesses he can with just a spoken word deliver people from diseases and ailments that no medicine or no surgical procedure could but he not only has authority over physical illness he has authority over the natural world before the uh, we get to the end of chapter 8 the disciples are in the midst of a sea The wind and the waves have stirred up an incredible storm. And Jesus, again, with just a word, can rebuke wind and waves. And even the wind and waves, the disciples said, do what? They obey him. And Jesus has authority as well over the spirit world. And again, by just his words, he can order demons out of men. And then Jesus has authority over the most feared enemy of all. He can speak and he can bring one that everybody knows to have been dead back to life with his voice. These miracles are illustrations that confirm his authority and the authenticity of his claims to be the king over which Uh, over uh, all things over which heaven rules. And with that overview, again, then briefly revisited, we want to go back and see uh, some of the individual uh, contributions to that broad witness. And we're going to do that this morning in verses 1 through 17. And I'm hopeful that many of you used your pen when we walk through the overview, and and you have noted in your margin each of the ten miracles. If you did, you can just kind of look and see that verses 1 through 17 cover the first three miracles. Chapters, again, 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Now you come to chapter 8, verse 1. He came down from the mountain. Great multitudes followed. And verse 2 begins to relate to us the healing of What kind of a person? Behold, there came a leper. And then verse 5 begins to relate the healing of a centurion's servant. 
And then verse 14 begins to tell us about the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. And what I want you to see is that I didn't just group these three together and decide, all right, that's a good cutoff point for today. Because as you look at verse number 18 and the verses that follow, you see it's not another miracle that is highlighted, but it's some interaction about what? All right, it's about verse 19, a certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will, I will follow thee. And it's about following or about discipleship. So, so there is something of a break in the storyline after the first three. I just heard Priscilla say this week watching something, ah, there's a plot twist, right? And that's what we have. We've got 17 verses of three miracles, and then we have a plot twist. And without going into detail again that we noted in, in, in our overview, the miracles in these two chapters aren't typically in chronological order. So while there's, while there's a shift, we also have three, and the, the three are not in order, but they're grouped together. And all of that is drawing attention to the fact that Matthew has a clear purpose in mind when he groups these three. So we're going to dig into each of them and make some observations. But while we're observing all, each of them individually, we want to see the connections between the three of them. We're tipped off to look for that. Now, when we start to make observations about the first miracle, again in verse 2, we see that it was a leper who approached Jesus. And in the ancient world, leprosy, what was at least one of, if not the most feared disease, we've learned a fair amount more about it today, and it's not nearly as feared as it was then. But leprosy is a bacteria that numbs and then eats away at nerve endings and it, it's relatively slow moving but it does progress it starts by attacking the attacking the periphery and in, in particular it begins with the skin and then arms and legs and feet and eyes before as it continues it, it progresses to the muscles and organs one of the particular concerns about leprosy is that there is a dangerous loss of feeling so a leper might not feel pain when the hands or the legs or, or feet are, are cut or burned or otherwise injured. Um, the disfiguration of the face from the swelling and, and bumps and the lumps is, is difficult to deal with. There's often damage to the, the inside of the nose that leads to bleeding and, and stuffiness and and blindness in particular is common. Eventually there will be muscle weakness that kind of leads to what they describe as claw-like hands where they, you really can't, there's, there's an inability to flex the hands or the feet. And if it continues, it, it starts to affect organs like the kidneys. And again, we know today that leprosy is is contagious but it's not nearly as contagious as what they used to think in the ancient world but in the ancient world with all of those um, complications that come the fear of catching it and and the spread uh, the fear of the spread was so strong that lepers would often be in in colonies 
where they live in isolation and in some poor countries those still exist i was reading about some of those they say that there is as of 2016 i was reading an article that there still is a leper colony on a particular hawaiian island that's the only one left in the u.s but poor countries still have some of these now again treatment today is pretty effective but in that day most of the cases were were viewed as incurable the Old Testament references um, to leprosy likely included what we have today, but seem to also include nearly any infectious uh, skin disease. So again, when someone was, was known to have uh, that form of disease, the Old Testament did call for them to live in isolation outside of the city. Then if someone were to come, an unknown person were to approach the leper, he was required to actually call out, unclean, unclean. To give them notice. There's two recorded occasions in the Bible where God actually smote people with leprosy. When, when Miriam uh, rebelled against the leadership of her brother Moses, God smote her with leprosy. When King Uzziah, who was an overall good king, but later in his life was lifted up in pride, God smote him with leprosy and he remained in isolation the rest of his life. So all of that is kind of the backdrop to what we're supposed to be thinking and feeling about Jesus interacting with a leper. And and leprosy is actually never directly stated to represent sin in the Bible, but many have made that connection because you think about leprosy and sin. It, It numbs and it debilitates and it disfigures and it progresses and it doesn't just affect the individual. It has multiple social ramifications. All that's true about leprosy and sin. And in our text here, this one that clearly considered himself to be unclean and that others would have considered unclean. Look at what it says that he did. It says that he worshipped Jesus. And, and the word for worship in our New Testament is a word that is literally fell down. Some suggest it means even falling on his face. This is actually the first time anyone, the first record of anyone in Jesus' public ministry of doing this activity to him. And here is a leper who comes and falls down in front of Jesus in worship. And notice the detail of what he says. He says, Lord, if you are what? Okay, if you are willing, I know that you are. Okay, I know that you are able. If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. What this leper, when he falls down in front of Jesus, what he says is, if you are willing, I know that you are able to deliver me. And isn't that... Brethren, where we wrestle often, we know he has all power. But what we wrestle with is he willing to display that power for me, right? In this circumstance. And this is the appeal that this leper makes. And notice in verse 3, Jesus put forth his hand and touched him. And that didn't need to be recorded. At one level, it's 
kind of an incidental detail because what's critical is what Jesus says. But it's here, and it's interesting for us to pause, that Jesus touched a who? He touched a leper. And, and seriously, only God knows how long it had been since anyone touched that man. Touched him, period, but touched him with any kind of warmth. And here is unclean, isolated, disease-wracked man. And Jesus touched him. And then Jesus said what was so critical. He said, I will. I'm not only able, but I'm what? I'm willing. And then interestingly, what does he say? He says, be thou, be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that thou tell no man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priests, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. Go to Jerusalem, follow the instructions, verify the healing from leprosy. And those priests had likely never seen anyone actually make a claim that was verified. But this man did. And the flow of this narrative is is pretty simple. Jesus is able and willing to, to deliver the neediest and the really clean people up. People that are personally pained and defiled and disfigured and in isolation, Jesus is able and willing to deliver them and clean them up. And as the Holy Spirit superintended Matthew to give us this record, he didn't want us to pause and spend much more time here. And I'm saying that because we can actually compare it with Mark's account. And, and Mark's account has about double the material. There's more to say about the Lord's healing of this leper. But, but Matthew doesn't give it to us. We just move right on to the next record. And remember, again, this is out of chronological order. So there is a reason for the next miracle to be right on the heels of this one. In verse 5, as you notice, the man who reaches out to Jesus now was a centurion not a jew but a gentile and not just a gentile but a roman military officer now the sight of a roman soldier from a garrison in their country was difficult for the jewish people to see ever and again this book is written primarily to to jews This is something we're supposed to think about. Now, Matthew again could have told us more. Luke tells us additional information. Luke actually says that some Jews came with that Roman centurion when he came to Jesus. And some Jews actually kind of vouched for him. They they said that this man was worthy of Jesus' attention because he he had helped build their synagogue. So this is kind of a rare Rome and officer and the Jews are kind of vouching but Matthew doesn't include all of that it seems like he just wants us to be left with kind of the impression and the feel this guy's a Gentile he's a Roman military man and he wants that to just sink in to everybody but in particular to sink in with a, to a Jewish mind and when this officer appealed to Jesus to come 
Jesus immediately in verse number seven said, notice this, I what? Okay, I will come and heal him. But then this story takes a really interesting turn. The centurion, instead of saying, great, let's go, right, starts talking about, as you can read, he starts talking about authority. Well, he says, I'm not worthy that you come under my roof. Speak the word only. My servants shall be healed, for I'm a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go. And he goes. When the officer says jump, the guy says what? How far? <laughs> yes, sir. Right? And, or how high? And, and, and he says to another, come. And he comes. And to my servant, do it. And he does it. And then all of that is designed to suggest that what? Jesus could do the same thing about this man's servant. And again, the centurion doesn't use the exact expression, but he is stating that if you are really the authority figure I believe you to be, then the only question is a question of whether you are willing to display that authority on behalf of my servant. And... <clears throat> Jesus had already declared he was, so to the centurion, that settles it. I believe you're able, and if you're willing, and you say you are, then I regard the thing as done. And in verse 10, how did Jesus respond to that? When Jesus heard it, he, he marveled. This is the same concept. He was amazed. And you might want to jot a note beside verse 10 if you don't have it there. Mark 6 and verse 6 is the reference you want to jot. In Mark 6, 6, Jesus marveled at the unbelief of the people in his hometown in Nazareth. And I'm having you jot that down because as far as I can tell, these are the only two times the Bible says Jesus was amazed or he marveled about anything. One thing he marveled at was the faith of this Gentile officer and the other thing he was amazed about was the unbelief of his own people from his own hometown. And again, right here, the Lord compares the faith. This is why we know we're not making too much of this. He compares the faith of this Gentile with the Jews. Look at what he says in verse 10. Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith. No, not in where? Not in Israel. That's where you would think you would find faith. You would think that the Jewish people would recognize the king of the Jews. But no, there's more faith in this Gentile. And then it's as if he digresses into a scene that's still future. Notice he goes on to say in verse 11, I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into utter darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Many physical descendants of Abraham are going to be excluded, while many Gentiles are going to be brought and be a part of it all. And again, while that could seem like a digression, it's part of an emphasis that is starting to emerge. 
right? A leper, again, would have been thought to be one of the neediest kinds of people there was. And certainly a leper was outside of participation in normal life. He's out in the colony, unclean, unclean. But with the neediest of all and with an outcast of the people, if a man will truly worship Jesus and believe that he is able and willing, he will see what God can do. And now we have the centurion again. Jesus doesn't just have that posture towards certain ethnic groups alone. Okay, he's a leper, but he's Jew. But it's not just about outcast Jews, even when it comes to Gentiles. And you could take a despised military ruler among the Gentiles. He's able and willing to meet the need of that kind of individual as well. And when you start talking again about a necessary response in men, some of those Gentiles have a greater grasp of the authority of Jesus and greater faith in Jesus than even the religious Jews. All these things are coming together. And then we get to the third miracle. And the third miracle, verse 14, Jesus came into Peter's house and he saw his wife's mother laid and sick of a fever. And there are several interesting dynamics. And, and one of them is just the fact that this is Peter's mother-in-law. And that has ramifications on an heir that has been purported about Peter. The heir being that he was single. But you don't have a mother-in-law without being what? Okay, without being married. Okay. But another observation to make is simply that this is a woman. And women in this culture were, like the previous two individuals, they were outside full participation in the religious life of the Jewish community. Now, if you read anything about the temple, the temple compound in those days, there was a court of the Gentiles. But then there was the court of the women. And then there was the, the... precincts proper of the temple where only jewish men could go when we went to israel a number of years ago there still is to this day a distinction where only women can go at the western wailing wall and where the men can go and then the orthodox could go underneath wilson's arch back into their their arena there when jesus came into the house of this woman and sees her sick. I want you to notice verse number 15 again, this emphasis. Jesus did what in verse 15? He touched her hand. And one commentator quoting an ancient authority actually said, in Jewish teaching, a man should not make contact with a woman's hand even to count money from his hand to hers. So if they're exchanging something and he's giving, he has to be careful even when he gave her the money not to touch her hand. But Jesus again touches one who was considered to be out of the mainstream religious life. And the fever left her and she arose and ministered. But the record of the healing moves pretty quickly. That's it. And moves right into verse number 16, 
When evening was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick. And all of that is just, again, pretty general. But all of that is actually moving on its way to verse 17. And in verse 17, we find Matthew saying that there is scripture for all of what we're observing here. Notice that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah, the prophet saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. There's scripture for all of what we observed and I've been recording. But the scripture cited is definitely interesting. It's obviously found in what book? Okay, Isaiah. Perhaps you have a marginal note from your Bible publishers with the chapter... And the verse, okay, and, and if you don't, go ahead and jot it down. It is Isaiah, obviously, chapter, for those of you that have it, it's chapter 53 and verse 4. Now, I'm not going to have you turn there this morning. I do want to draw your attention. Uh, I, I want to draw upon the fact that many of you know much of that. Isaiah chapter 53 definitely talks about him bearing our griefs and carrying our sorrows. But the source of our griefs and sorrows in Isaiah 53 is not primarily physical illness. All right? He was wounded for our what? Transgressions. He was bruised for our what? For our iniquities. Think about this. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all now brother what isaiah 53 is primarily about is about the messiah's sacrificial atonement for man's sins verse 5 actually says by his stripes we are healed and we're healed from our what we're healed from our sins but matthew and Matthew's making a connection here between Isaiah 53 and the sacrificial atonement for our sins and Jesus healing people of their diseases. How does he get there? And the way Matthew gets there, and really the, the way the rest of the scripture makes the connection, is that physical disease of all kind is the result of what? It is the result of sin. Even if you can't make a one-for-one -one connection between this sin and this disease, nobody would be sick if it wasn't for, if it wasn't for sin. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin... And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sin. Yeah, sickness and disease in the human race is a result of sin. And honestly, uh, all forms of affliction in nature, in the natural world, death and disease in the natural world is the result of man's sin. Romans chapter 8 says that even our environment that we live in on this earth was subjected to vanity. It was subjected to temporary life before dying. You think about the living things that are starting to come back up as we start to hit spring in the south. And they'll hit spring in the north in a few months from now, right? But 
things start to come back to life, but then they're all just going to die again. And die relatively quickly. In Romans 8, Paul says that all of that is because even creation was subjected to vanity because of our sin. And they await the glorious liberty of the transformation of the people of God. And God reverses it all. But all disease, all death, all dying is the result of sin. And God's salvation, if it is a true deliverance, will have to be powerful enough to reverse and to deliver from all of sin's consequences. And Matthew says, look, there is scripture that points to our expectation that the Messiah will have the power to grant a full deliverance from sin and all the effects of sin. And his doing miracles is just a foretaste of the fact that he has all of that authority. And if he doesn't do it now for you in your life, he will. John chapter 5 verse 24 says, If anyone hears and believes his word, they will not face condemnation. But listen to this. They have already passed from death unto life. You know what's wonderful? Jesus said in John chapter 8 and verse 51, Verily, verily, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Never see it. During the last year of his life, multiple close friends and family talked about Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And and hearing him talk about the need to prepare to die in victory. He actually one time talked to his former assistant, close friend Ian Murray, and, and he said, there's all kinds of people that say, I hope when I go that it's sudden. And he said, people talk that way because they're afraid of death. And he said, that shouldn't be the stance of a Christian. And he talked about how much he was thankful that he could see his death approaching and have the months that actually spilled into about 14 months or so. That he could prepare to die in victory. And he talked about the need that he had. He would talk about our failure to believe the exceeding great and precious promises that the word of God is full of. When he could sing, when he had enough strength to sing, they said that he would sing often, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And he would in particular want to sing the third verse, when all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. A doctor about a month before he died was talking to him and he was sitting up in his chair and he was coherent and he said, I'd give you anything I could give you to make you feel better. It, it, it just breaks my heart to see you so weak and sad. And he was struggling to talk even then. But he stopped the doctor and he said, not sad, not sad. I'm weak, but I'm not sad. And two days before his death, he had lost his ability to speak. But he could still nod. 
And people still commented on the smile. And in his emaciated body, they said, the smile just took up nearly his whole face. <laughs> and his wife and daughter were there in the room, and some people had left, and they were going to pray. And he asked for some paper, and he wrote. And he wrote his wife and, he, and his daughter, and he said, don't pray for healing. Don't hold me back from glory. <laughs> And again, Ian Murray, his former assistant, had read his handwriting many times, and he got to see that note. And he said that note was so hard to read, except for the mention of glory. Don't hold me back from glory. Sometimes people will announce the death of a dear saint, and for some time it would take me off guard but they would write things like, the Lord has healed my mom from all her disease. And then you keep reading and find out that she's in heaven. And dear friend, that's not a cop-out. That's not just some kind of mental adjustment to help us cope. The reality is, the moment somebody is translated to heaven, they don't see death, and they are healed from all their diseases. And they are delivered from all their sin. And dear friend, believe. This is here. I'm, I'm saying this, these three miracles grouped together the way they are, are given to challenge us and exhort us to believe that he is able and willing to do every good thing as it relates to you. You could be a nobody in the eyes of men. You could be an outsort, uh, 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 you know, an outcast of sorts, perhaps, you know, socially. You could be racked with pain. And you could even be dirty with sin in particular. But he is able and willing to deliver you and to clean you up. And no good thing will he withhold from them that walks uprightly. He might use doctors, he might use medicine to grant a gradual healing now. He could just say the word and your illness be gone. If he doesn't do it this side of heaven, then he will in glory. That is your ultimate expectation. He will, in reference to sin, use means of grace in your life. To bring victory over sin. And that is typically gradual. And it is progressive. I would tell you that he can deliver you right now from something that has plagued you. And there's people here that know what it was for God to grant them deliverance on the spot from something. And show his hand. The day will come where he does that with all your sin. All your sin is forever gone. And therefore, I believe that when it comes to the hour of your death, he's able and willing to heal you from all the effects of sin and translate you into everlasting life. That's his message for you today. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And I just want to give opportunity for you to
communicate with the Lord. I don't know where the challenge would be to you today to believe that he's able and that he's willing. What it is to believe about your life right now, physically, spiritually, about your future. You may need to cry out, I do believe, but Lord, strengthen my faith. 